The following aviation podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast by thepilotreport.com about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 24, Unmanned Aircraft Systems, Non-Towered Airports, and Transporting the Space Shuttle, coming up now on this edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now, here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Rick Felty, Carl Valeri, and Len Costa. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 24 of the Stuck Mike Avcast. I'm your host, Len Costa, and joining me on the show tonight, as always, are the usual group of aviation geeks, starting with <laughs> Actually, Carl Valeri. <laughs> that, normally, normally, I object to what you call us, but that's <laughs> pro- probably true in my case. It could be, yes, today's geeks. <laughs> Carl, how's it going today? Wonderful. From, from geeky Florida here. Just geeky. a sunny, wonderful, geeky place. Well, you're fortunate to have sun. That's been... Not sunny where I am. So anyway, what are you? You've been up to some busy things today. Tell us real fast. What you've uh, been on the news all day? You're like a news superstar there in Tampa. Oh uh, gosh, you know it's actually been interesting. I've been, uh, and we'll talk about this later. As far as the unmanned aerial vehicles that we talked about, and uh, our unmanned aircraft systems, I spent a day just doing a special about that. And then at the same time, uh, a news story broke. I guess, uh, and everybody will probably have read about this. Uh, Cessna 421 uh, going from uh, Slide L in Louisiana on its way to Sarasota, lost communications and uh, with ATC, and they scrambled some fighters, and uh, they went up there and, and saw that his windows were fogged over and mm. iced over, and he uh, circled in and crashed. Mm. And so what I did today is spent most of the day at the... The Fox Studio just talking about that. Educating folks and helping the, the, the non-flying public understand. Yes, yeah, and uh, that was, it was interesting, that's for sure. As a matter of fact, what was great is one of my students has a 421, so they uh, went to the airport and used his 421 for the interview, and he was able to educate them and me on the operations of the 421. It's really cool. interesting. Hmm. Very cool. Neat. Also joining us today is Victoria Nouvelle, perched high upon the hills, looking overlooking Frederick, Maryland. How are you tonight, Victoria? I'm doing fine and dandy. How's your view tonight? Is it dark there or is it cloudy? What's going no, on? No, not yet. Actually, the sun's setting, so I got a couple layers of colors going on, and we just planted a bunch of flowers and have them hanging over the deck, so I like it. I can't complain. Excellent. Well, Bob's not there to hair you, so it wouldn't, wouldn't matter anyway. Yep, exactly. I can't suck up. <laughs> Uh, Rick Felty's also here joining us today. Rick, where in the world are you today? Yes, sir. I'm outside of Boston, as usual. Um, everything's pretty good tonight. Uh, this, this, by the time this comes out, this won't matter, but there's apparently a pretty good brush fire in Dedham, Mass tonight, which is viewed... Uh, the reason I'm interested or know about it is it's fairly close to Norwood, which is the airport I fly out of. So kind of keeping an eye on that tonight as, we, as the sun sets here. I've seen a lot of fires last week out in West Virginia, half the state's burning. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's it's pretty tricky right now. Yeah, it's very dry. Yeah, which is not good. It is a tricky situation. And uh, finally, I'm Len Costa, and we are recording live from my beautiful hotel room overlooking lovely Lincoln, Nebraska. 
<laughs> and uh, yeah, absolutely. The Cornhusker State. Yep, just uh, was nice. out having a little dinner with the flight crew before this, and uh, here we are back, ready, recording another show, number twenty-four. We are just moving along. We're having an anniversary coming up. Yeah, we're inching months. our way to the quarter century. That's right. Nice. Oh, wow! Almost to the twenty-fifth episode, and just coming up on our first year podcasting in a, in a few days here. Wow! So. Yes. Really exciting. Maybe we'll have to do something special. I don't know. We'll have to talk about that offline. Yeah. Let's do the pre-flight. Before we do get underway tonight, as always, we'd like to start off the show with a couple of announcements. The first being just a reminder if uh, folks are interested in picking up any of the Stuck Mike Avcash swag, our T-shirts, coffee cups, buttons, magnets, any of that stuff, it is available at stuckmikeavcast.com forward slash buy. Uh, there's a lot of cool items over there. Also, for folks who have asked me about sending in donations, uh, this is a listener-supported show. The donations go towards supporting the bandwidth and the file storage for the podcast files. First of all, I love uh, the fact that you know we have received a bunch of donations already. Thank you to everyone. I'd love to name you all off individually, but we just don't have enough time to do that. Uh, the rest of the folks interested in sending in, you know, even a dollar, five dollars, whatever. Like I said, it goes towards uh, helping with the bandwidth and the file hosting for the show. That is stuckmikeavcast dot com forward slash support and uh, our very last announcement of the day victoria rocks how did that get in the notes <laughs> somebody snuck in my teleprompt what is this <laughs> you have a teleprompter nice. uh, so it, yeah well, well she, anyway she does so it works out Oh, she snuck it in. She did. She does rock. I mean, look what she did there in Frederick. That was amazing. I mean, you can't deny the fact that she is awesome. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Don't deny it. No. Nope. I haven't we'll tried. Chase you down. I know. That's why I'm. A, that's why I moved across the country because I didn't. You, you can't find me. I will find you, Lynn. <laughs> now entering cruise flight. Well, let's get underway today. We have a lot of fun stuff to share with you. Carl, you did actually, uh, at the beginning of the show, you were making reference to some unmanned aerial systems and some things that you were uh, you were sharing with the news station today. Why don't you give us just a little uh, recap of what that was all about? Well, uh, as has been in the news lately, the uh, unmanned aerial aircraft have been, uh, or actually now they like to call it the unmanned aircraft systems, is what the FAA likes to call it, has really come to the forefront of the news because Congress has pushed the FAA to say, hey, we need to find some new sites where we can test the use of these unmanned aircraft systems in the national airspace system. Sounds kind of scary at first, but you have to realize that these unmanned aircraft systems are going to be tested for many years. We still need some data before we can go forward with this. And what they're just looking for is somewhere where they can test using them in the system now. We know that they worked in Iraq, in Iran. They, we knew they worked overseas. But that's actually in a military type of application where we have collateral damage. Currently, I think, in my opinion, we're really in the golden age of unmanned flight. You know, when we had Wilbur and Orville, they took their first flight. Then we moved on to some experimental aircraft. Then we moved into people, mainly wealthy folks, actually out there flying and being transported, jetting off to different areas. That's sort of where we are with this whole unmanned aircraft systems. The aircraft systems are currently being used for some, some great things. For instance, during Katrina, they were out there looking for people and survivors during certain many different disaster reliefs like the uh, the oil rig that actually burnt they were out there monitoring that where it wasn't safe to fly aircraft and also it's used for customs and border patrol 
But you know what? We we really do have a way to go on this. Um, and the Customs and Border Patrol can really attest to this. The As Americans, we are really relying upon this safe and reliable national air, airspace system. The Customs and Border Patrol have been using these unmanned aircraft systems for, oh gosh, about five years now. Unfortunately, the accident rate has been so high, and, and I hate to use these statistics because we, we don't have a lot of data. The accident rate is so high that's 350 times as dangerous as traveling by air and over seven times as dangerous as traveling in a small airplane. So what the FAA said is, wait, we need more data. We know this can work. We, we've made leaps in our technology. So let's look at what we can do for these unmanned aircraft systems and how we can move forward. And there's really the two issues that they're trying to resolve right now. The two main issues are currently the see and avoid issue. See, as, as people, as pilots, we can look outside. We're mandated to see and avoid other aircraft, other objects, and other animals. Well, the aircraft can't really do that like a human can, but they're developing technologies that will enable them to do that. They have cameras, they have radar. So they're going to be able to sense this, but they have to also perceive it and then avoid that object to make sure it truly is an object they need to avoid and it's not just a cloud. So that's one of the things they need to move forward with. The other part of this scenario is the command communication and control systems. That's where somebody on the ground is actually controlling this aircraft and they need to have some systems put into place so that if that communications breaks down or the person controlling the aircraft has a problem, they'll still be able to go forward. You know, Len, you and I, we, we're in an, an airliner and we have a door that separates us from the passengers. Well, that door is a security measure. We don't have any security measures out delineated for people that are actually operating these unmanned aircraft systems. And, and the other thing, too, that's that's been tough in, the, in moving forward with this is standardization. You know, you can't just jump in there and start flying one of these things around. They're all different. Matter of fact, the Border Patrol system actually had a crash not too long ago where somebody had actually switched the tank and forgot how to switch it back, or the next controller of that aircraft forgot how to switch it back or forgot to, they're not sure, and the aircraft crashed. So we have to have some standardization there. So I, you know, today I spent most of my day being interviewed by uh, somebody from Fox 13 here in Tampa Bay. And one of the questions that he put to me, and he kind of pushed me into the wall on this one, is do you think that we're moving too quickly with this? And my answer was actually no. I know that a lot of people may have the opposite opinion, but we've been doing this for, for some years now. In the 80s is when we started using unmanned aircraft systems in the military. But we aren't moving fast enough towards getting more research data. And that's the point I wanted to make. I'm actually pretty excited about this. This is really cool stuff. It has a lot of other implications that we can't even get into with. Yeah, like you and I are going to be out of a job. <laughs> well, no, that's a good example. I mean, they somebody has to actually fly these aircraft. Now, at some point, they're talking about autonomous unmanned aircraft systems. And I think that's what you're alluding to. I don't think that's going to be for a while because, you know, obviously they need to communicate with other aircraft so that, but, but if that communication drops off, they need to be able to fly on their own. Mm -hmm. For instance, the other day I was flying, my TCAS, my, my traffic, avoidance traffic and collision avoidance software was not working. So I had to use my eyeballs and look outside the airplane. So they have to have that system in place. 
don't think you'll ever replace the pilot. I don't think you'll ever replace the person on the ground that's actually controlling that aircraft. But, you know, already we have computers that, that tell us what to do, especially in those type of situations where there is a collision that's imminent. Um, and the other thing, too, Len, I think a lot of people, they think about these unmanned aircraft systems as being these huge, uh, big, monstrous types of systems that are as big as a 737. We're talking about a lot of these are, are really about 55 pounds. And some of the estimates are they're going to be like 30,000 of these by the year 2020. Mm-hmm. A whole bunch. And it really is. And, and I think what we have to do is is not is figure out how we're going to have them work in our system to communicate with the other airplanes out there because you know what i i personally am demanding a system that has to be safe but i'm and i'm sure you do and also the the traveling public does and boy i tell you there's some <laughs> some pretty cool like 007 type stuff i uh we had a, a demonstration done of these little bitty machines that were only a couple ounces that were flying through the room and talk about the literal fly on the wall, able to actually fly within our houses. And, and, and you know, bringing that up, the, uh, a lot of people talk about, well, there are unmanned aircraft systems already. They're called radio-controlled airplanes. Well, radio-controlled airplanes have already been defined as recreational and for use under mm-hmm. 400 yeah. So that's, this excludes all that. That definitely excludes all that. So you were worried about your job, Len? Is that what you uh, No, not really, actually. See, I, what I envision is the future of aviation is going to be a flight deck occupied by one pilot and one service dog. And the pilot is there to feed the dog, and the dog is there to make sure the pilot doesn't touch <laughs> anything. <laughs> Sounds a little bitter there, Len. <laughs> well, I like dogs. It's fine with if I don't have to do anything, I can just hang out with Fido and stare out the window. That's a good day for me. Well, but, you know, and they've talked about that. I think they are thinking of, of replacing, well, maybe especially you, Len, but, you know, they're, they're talking <laughs> about the personality cockpit and having Fido there instead. Yeah, I am replaceable at my level. I know that. Thank you, Carl. Thank you for reminding me. I'm going to go cry now. So let me, okay, let me, let me just represent the, the G, the GA pilot for a second and ask how this, what's, you know, short term, one thing, long term, you know, maybe is the question I'm asking, which is, I assume that this is somewhat integrated or not, or is it not integrated or will it not in the future be integrated with, with uh, air traffic control? So it's that, not, go ahead. It's currently integrated with air traffic control and the way that they work it currently is that you actually have NOTAMs that are placed out there. And these NOTAMs will tell you that, uh, notices to airmen will tell you that the air, airspace is shut down. Places like uh, um, New Mexico, they have a university there. Public organizations such as the Border Patrol and Fire Protection and Police, they will put up a temporary flight restriction, and they will not work with air traffic control other than to make sure nobody goes into that airspace. Right. What they're looking to do, though, is to integrate it, yes. Right. With air I mean, because you're flying along, and uh, you're looking out the window, and you've got your, you know, whatever kind of plane you have, you have some degree of warning, but you, maybe you don't. Or you might get an advisory saying, hey, there's, there's, you know, an, an, there's a vehicle. Uh, here's the altitude, and here's the, you know, head, heading, and, and we're not in communication with them. Or we are. And it, that, that's sort of what I'm wondering is, what will I be able to know if I'm on flight following or if I'm, you know, an instrument, you know, on an instrument uh, flight plan? What will I be? And this is not, you don't have an answer necessarily to this, but I assume they, that there will be knowledge of what that thing is that's, that's also coexisting in my airspace. Right. And that, that's actually something that they brought up with uh, NextGen. Is yeah, the, next gen. Yeah, 
aircraft, uh, unmanned aircraft systems to actually communicate with the next generation system that will communicate with your aircraft. And you know that that aircraft is out there. Okay. So something that will benefit this yeah, type cool. of system. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm nervous about it right now. Uh, but I'm, I'm also, I, I, I'm hopeful. I think it's a, it's a great idea. And uh, it had, other than the implementation right now where they shut the airspace down, of course, the, the DOD, the Department of Defense, wants to shut out, out parts of airspace permanently. And we're like, you know, I think most people would agree that we can't do that. You know, one of the things we enjoy is our freedoms in this country is the ability to mm -hmm. teach these guys. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is mostly, uh, I mean, we already know the capabilities of some of these aircraft, like you said, used in wartime. But what they're looking to do is just start exercising these aircraft more in the national airspace system for testing data to see, you know, to develop systems and just get data in general. It's kind of what this whole issue is about. Right, right. And there's a lot of them out there already. I mean, they have over 300 application, uh, applications that have been approved for these type of systems. Um, but and, and the other thing that, you know, they, they're looking at here, and, and I think it was... Uh, uh, Rick, that brought it up is the fact that they want to move forward with regulations. You know, how do you how do you put these into the system, and how do you regulate the people that are actually flying those, and and how do you integrate that into our current air traffic control system, which is really important. Well, one question I had for you is you you meant you know you made mention to the fact that pilots in commercial airliners and and air commerce are behind a locked door for security purposes. However, are I, I guess I'm not the most uh, educated as far as unmanned aerial systems at this point, but as far as I know, at least the military stuff. I mean, those guys, those guys hold some pretty high clearances. They're also certificated pilots in some way, shape, or form for this aircraft, so they should be about as trustworthy as we are. What is the issue that you're alluding to about you know requiring some sort of screening process for these these unmanned operators? Well. Uh, I think maybe not too many people know this, and, and obviously, you know, from our conversation, I'm getting that feeling, and that maybe I didn't make it clear, that these unmanned aircraft systems aren't being actually controlled by the military. The, these are all public use. These are people that work for the police department. These are people that work for the fire department. These are universities that are doing this flying. So we haven't instilled certain safety uh, restrictions and regulations as their security within that building. And, and by the way, before I forget that this is actually a notice of proposed rulemaking out there to identify six different sites and airspace where they can actually do this type of testing. And you have till May 8th of 2012 to actually put your comments in there and to make comments in, on the proposed rulemaking. Mm -hmm. But that, that's the issue. It's we're not, they're looking not just at public use, public use meaning government, they're looking at civilian use. They're mm -hmm. looking at war with that. Now, how do you address that that issue? And that that's a biggie. That's a real big issue. And they have to come up with standardization. There's there's a lot of unknowns here, but it's sure. cool that they're moving forward with it at least. Well, I would think that just the very fact that maybe an operator is a certificated pilot is a, is at least a step in the forward direction to having some sort of record of trust of knowledge of who's behind the controls of said aircraft, not to say that there aren't folks out there who haven't, you know, done things willfully and negligently with an aircraft, uh, flying them into objects intentionally. But as far as I, I don't know that I'm aware of a story of, say, an aircraft operator intentionally 
crossing paths with another aircraft for the purpose of crashing into, you know, a larger aircraft or any other aircraft to do damage or loss of life. So I wonder if that's maybe at least the first step that you at least have to be in the system as an aircraft operator and a pilot. And that's what they have in place right now. When you do go to get your, you have to get a certificate of waiver or a certificate of authorization from the FAA. And, and part of that is that the air, unmanned aircraft system has two things, the flyable part, and they have the component on the ground. The person on the ground currently has to have a pilot certificate mm -hmm. by that. And that's how you can get that waiver from the FAA. Mm -hmm. The process is actually a lot easier. Currently, they're trying to make it a 60-day certificate of waiver process. So you can apply for it and get it within 60 days of your initial application. It's pretty quick. You know, if, if you're someone who has one and, and wants to be out, mm -hmm. out there flying. So this is this is for the serious RC aircraft operator, then. This is the <laughs> ultimate toy. Yeah, serious. <laughs> No, some of these are smaller than some of those radio-controlled aircraft. I mean, those things are big. I mean, seeing those at the air show, it's amazing. And uh, and that's the type of things they're flying around. You know, I, I got into flying because I was into radio-controlled aircraft, and I was into model uh, rockets. You know, this is taking it a step further and putting it up into our national airspace system, flying with the other vehicles that are up there, and making sure, number one, they don't bump into each other, and number mm -hmm. two, they don't harm things on the ground, unfortunately. That hasn't happened yet, and uh, and boy, I tell you, another issue that's a small percentage, but it's too high right now is, you know, what happens if the system breaks, mm -hmm. and how does it go to a default mode? You know, you know, it's like danger, Will Robertson, danger, you know, <laughs> and then out the disc and you reboot them. You know, what do we do there? So it, it is a little scary there, and I, I probably want to. I think some of my comments will be unpopular amongst pilots, but I am I am excited about the idea of moving mm -hmm. forward research i'm not saying that that i want this to happen right now and my personal prediction is going to be 10 to 20 years before we actually are fully integrated sure sure you know i heard that uh fifi was an rc just a big rc operated airplane <laughs> kind of like kind of like what land moon that was just yeah like that the hoax on the landing on the moon that's right rick you wanted to say something uh i don't think so i mean just i think it's an interesting topic and and i get that right now there's this you know, limited use situation to, to figure stuff out. And I also get that there's probably reasons to consider, continue to, you know, investigate and figure out how to move it forward. And, and there'll be answers, but it, it is, if you're a pilot and you like the, you know, the pilot sitting there controlling a plane, I get why you're, you know, wary of this, not just professionally, but you know, that it takes that away. It's kind of like the early astronauts wanting to be able to fly the thing. Mm -hmm. And I get that. So interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe they could hire Victoria's grandfather to teach them how to fly these things. Exactly. He'd do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He'd be thrilled. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Very cool. Speaking of uh, speaking of Victoria, let's uh, let's move into a discussion today. Um, Victoria, tell us what some some information about what it was you wanted to bring up and sort of talk to us about. Okay. Well, basically, um, my home base airport will be having a new control tower open up next month, and it's uh, becoming Class D airspace. So mm -hmm. it obviously has many pilots in the area in uproar about the things that are going to change, and they're going to they feel that they're losing their freedom. Mm -hmm. But then it has other pilots like me because I trained at um, a towered airport, and I'm comfortable operating in towered airspace. Actually, thinking. You know, this is good. I have another other pair of eyes to watch out for me up there. It's comforting. So I thought it would be kind of fun today to debate the pros and cons of 
towered or non-towered airports. Um, yeah, as I said before, good... yep, I, I trained at a towered airport, so I learned the communications quickly because I had no choice to. Um, I was I remember uh, flying um, the day that they changed from position and hold to line <laughs> up and wait. You know, now that we have to acknowledge that we're cleared across a runway, we have to actually say the runways back and stuff like that. So. Um, do any of you share the same experience? Did anyone here learn to fly at a towered airport? I did. I, I did. I did as well. I, Sorry, Carl. All of you? Is that yeah. all three of you guys? All right. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I taught at a few years out of a non-towered. And, uh, you know, did, I, did you think you had any benefit over pilots training at non-towered airports? That, you know, I I, I wouldn't. You know, there is one benefit to going to a non-towered airport is the fact that you can get off the ground in two seconds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I used to fly out of a place called Teterboro, New Jersey, and it would take me 30 minutes to tack. <laughs> and 172, and I'm burning so much gas, and that Haas meter is turning and turning. Of course, the flight instructor loved it because he was, you know, getting all that time. But the great thing is, though, you, you become comfortable with, with the tower and talking to the tower when you do operate at a tower control mm-hmm. field. I have to agree with that, Victoria. But, but gosh, you know, it, it could cost you a lot of money depending on which one you, you fly out of. Yeah, you know, I have maintained having because I so I learned at a tower field, and I think if you ask people, it is where where did you learn and what are you comfortable because that and that's the place you're most comfortable. And the other things intimidating. I will, you know, I know a lot of people who haven't done much tower work. You know, new 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 pilots or students or whatever who still, you know, it's like oh, I don't really want to go in there because I have to talk to this guy and I just as soon stay out here. And I have sort of the opposite thing, which is, is that I, you know, there's, there's a number of situations that I find particularly challenging and weekend flying into crowded non-towered fields is, you know, it's, a, it's tricky on a number of levels because you, you know, you've, you've, it, it's, there's, there's a lot of complexity and you're managing it. The group is managing itself. And um, so I'm still a little more intimidated by that and having to make all the call outs at each part of the, of the pattern, because I don't, I, I, I didn't do that as a training thing. So for me, I think it was because I started at the tower. I'm, I'm much more comfortable having somebody talking to me about it and, you know, staying ahead of them, making sure they, what they're saying to me is correct. Cause you, it's another pair of eyes on the situation, which is nice. And there is some degree of flow control happening, obviously, but also, but, but you do, you know, you, you do, you, you are still the pilot. So there's another, you know, another part of it there that, that is closer to what it's like to be at a non-towered thing, which is to say, Hey, I'm, I'm looking at this situation and I don't necessarily, you know, are you sure about that? I've done that a few times with the tower guys, mm-hmm. but I'm much more comfortable there for sure. Mm-hmm. Victoria, I wanted to ask you, you know, you mentioned that some people were concerned that they were going to be losing some freedoms because of this tower and the class Delta airspace. I mean, in what way, shape or form, what specifically have you heard in the regards of what freedoms they feel they're losing? Well, I know um, now we're going to be controlled on the ground, whereas there's going to be like an active ground area and then a, a non-movement area and stuff like that. So, you know, they're wondering, are we not allowed to, you know, sit by the runway and watch airplanes fly by? You know, will we not be able to walk to my friend's hangar anymore? Stuff like that. Um, in the air, freedom-wise, you know, some people, you know, are afraid that... I don't know, like maybe taking off on time where they could take off in front of this one plane that's on final and they know they can do it. But, you know, tower has separation rules and stuff like that. So um, 
as uh, Carl was saying about the time, you know, it really could take up a lot of time. But then there's helpful things like it can get really busy um, waiting for your um, IFR clearance at a non-towered airport. So it could actually clear things up a bit on, you know, um, a less than perfect weather day. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, it's funny, I didn't think of the ground issues that you mentioned in regards to hanging out by the runway and walking to your friend's hangar. And it's interesting because it's kind of like a really, really huge part of what Frederick Airport is all about. I mean, that's, that's, that's the, the community of pilots there, the family of pilots there, just wandering around and visiting your friends at their hangar and that, you know, your boss has the hangar barbecues all the time and can I wander out, you know, to the edge of the grass and take a photo, airplanes are taxiing by. I hadn't even considered like the outside ramifications besides the airspace. That's quite interesting. Because uh, I don't, I think you're right. It imposes certain limitations on, like you said, movement and non-movement areas, and where people can actually be wandering around on the ground surfaces. I, I also, I had a funny little moment where I, this is just dumb, but it's a towered thing. I didn't realize what there's some there's some very specific areas that are controlled and are not. And and I was I parked, you know, I parked the plane, outdoor parking, tie down, but I wasn't quite happy with the positioning, and it was far enough off that I wanted to start it up and move it just, you know, a little bit so I could then re reposition. And I called, you know, I called um, ground to tell him I wanted to do that and basically learned that what I was going to do was fine. I could just do it whenever I wanted to. I didn't need to bother them. But mm -hmm. it seemed to me, engine turning, I'm moving a plane. Somebody should know about it. It's how I felt because of how much I came through the system of, of a towered field. But that was like, no, 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 whatever. You know, just because I, you know, I wasn't going to be on a taxiway or anything. So, so you were essentially in one of these non-movement areas. Uh, or I was in, well, you mean, they, yeah, they don't control the movement. Exactly. Right. Correct. Yeah. And so, but I didn't know that because it isn't marked. Well, it probably is marked, but I didn't, you know, I just assumed I was out there and it isn't far from a movement area. I mean, it's literally a few, if I move 10 feet forward, I'm in one. Sure. So, it, you know, I was, you know, when in doubt, make the call, but it is interesting. You do start to second guess yourself on all sorts of things mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, since we're talking about movement and non-movement areas, I just pulled up a quick definition for uh, for the listeners out there. The movement and the non-movement area boundary lines on an air uh, an airport ground surface is one solid yellow line with a dashed yellow line next to it. So it kind of looks like a it kind of looks like the um, similar to the hold short line, except it's not a double dashed yellow line. It's one solid yellow line and one dashed yellow mm. line. And it marks the boundaries of the movement area and the ramp area. The dashed side is known as the movement area. Hmm. The solid side is known as the non-movement area. And I'm going to get into this in just a moment. Um, why, how this relates to what I was talking about in regards to a, you know, a hold short line, the dashed and the solid side. But uh, aircraft and op aircraft and vehicles operating in the non-movement area do not uh, necessarily require contact with air traffic control. So it's very, you know, what I was taught, guys, when I was um, flight training, that was super helpful to me. Is anytime you approach a solid line, you need clearance to cross it. Anytime you approach a dashed line, it's like a toll booth. You can move freely through the toll booth, through the hole in the dashed line to the solid side. But when you're coming from the other direction, you cannot cross that solid side. And the same thing actually applies with the hold short lines. And you'll find those when you, when you taxi up to hold short of the runway, it's a double dashed yellow line and one solid line. 
Um, and so the solid line is on your side and the dashed line is on the, air, the runway side. So you know when you taxi off the runway, you can go through the toll booth. You can go through that dashed line until you cross it. But when you're coming the other way to get onto the runway, you have to stop at that solid line. So the non-movement area and the movement area is the exact same thing, except that it's just instead of the two dashed lines, it's one dashed line. So that's one way that I actually use, uh, you know, as a visual reference to remember which side am I on and can I go through this or not go through this? I don't know. Is that helpful to you guys? We interrupt the show to make a brief audio correction. When I was talking about the runway hold short lines, I had mentioned that it was a single solid line and a double dashed line. That is incorrect. A runway hold short line is a double solid line followed by a double dashed line. Once again, a runway hold short line is a double solid line and a double dashed line. Now back to the show. I was taught the same way. The, like the, da- the, not, the solid line blocks you. That's your, Correct. That's your gate right there. You can't go through yeah, it. You can't go right. through it. The dash, you can sneak through the holes. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually something I was always taught now, I don't think it is the same for larger planes. I don't know how it could work. But when you're clearing over that dash line, let's say you're going off the runway and enter a taxiway and you're going to call ground, you want to make sure your whole tail is clear of oh, that yeah. line. Yeah. Sure. So that was a very important thing yeah, that's, um, to keep in mind. Oh, sure. yeah. And this, the other way, you don't want your nose going over that solid line at all right. before you're entering right. the right. runway. You know, can yeah. I, I'll, I'll just, well, I'll, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go well, ahead. I was just going to say, one of the things I like, I, I came to like about, and still do like about being at an airport that I fly out of that is a tower, it is, is it's a set crew generally that's in that tower. And I know their voices and, I, and there, there's something about knowing them even on some level that, you know, that, that is, that is cool. I don't know. You know, I don't know if you've watched the movie one six, right. But a big part of that, you know, a big part of that movie I thought was the, the, there's a section about the familiarity of the controllers. Everybody knows them. They're part of the team that helps you get in the air and helps keep everybody, you know, helps with everybody keeping themselves safe. Mm -hmm. There's something about it. Calling up Norwood for me coming back and hearing, a familiar voice that's very cool. <laughs> well, I agree. I um I'm going to give a shout out to Pontiac Airport in Michigan where I did all my training. I loved the controllers there. And there was one guy, I don't know if he's still there anymore, but I always hope he is when I go back and visit. Every time when you're either landing and switching over to ground or you're leaving the pattern switching over somewhere else, he goes, "See ya." And <laughs> All the pilots imitate it right back. So all of a sudden you'll hear all this see ya over the airways. That's cool. And then I'm like the girl trying to say it back when there's all these like deep voice gruff sounding men. And I'm like, see ya. <laughs> Never worked. <laughs> Never worked. <Right. laughs> yeah, there's some really cool applications for that non-movement area you were just talking about. You know, someone, I'm at Albert Witted Airport and... Someone told me, and I think they may have been pulling my leg, but they came up with this non-movement area that they put a, a pathway in that's paved. It goes around the end of the runway. So you can drive all the way around there in your golf court, and they put it there so that people can take their kegs of beer and bring them out to their hangar to have their little parties. I'm not sure I believe that story, but I know that that's one of the things you can do with all these non-movement areas. That's like pretty cool. Drive your beer around. Yeah. I- <laughs> that's all that Carl cares about. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do much research into that, but just think about it. There's so many areas that you can actually putz around in and mm-hmm. just yourself, even on an airport. You think, because mm-hmm. it's not, it's uh, towered and all. Yeah, t- tower, uh, keg, keg one five one, ready to taxi down the <laughs> down the beer taxiway. 
He's down the un- non-movement area. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're in the non-movement area. Free yeah. to move as you feel free. <laughs> but yeah, that's cool. When's the tower going into effect, by the way? Victoria? May 1st. Oh, May Day. We're going to try to be um, the first people to land oh. on it. So Bob and I are going to go up at like 6.30 in the morning. I think it opens at 7. We want to be the first to okay. touch down. Do that. Get, do that and, and shoot a video or get pictures or whatever. Yeah, Len's oh, right. It's, Len, sure. Len's right. It's the, the, the oh, day. The no, day. actually, I'm wrong. Oh, it's, it's the it's it. We're on today's. Th- see, we record oh, these yeah. shows so far ahead of time. Today's oh, episode's yeah. record is dropping so on May fifteenth. So it's a couple weeks ago. Oh, Fifteen so, days late. Congratulations on being the first one. Yeah, we were the first. <laughs> you know what? If you have pictures, we'll put it in the metadata. We'll hold it. There you go. So Hopefully send them. No one beats us to it. I'm I'm just gonna pretend we did it. And we rock. Yeah. Okay. And I didn't like sleep in and forget about it. Yeah, <laughs> you need to get your butt up early, girl. That's tough. I know. This is worth it, though. This one is worth it. I think it'll be good. It's a Tuesday. Be... Yeah, do it, do it, do it, do yeah, it. It's uh, two Tuesdays away, not next Tuesday, the Tuesday after. Got two weeks to rest up. From recording, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> um, yeah. Going back to our topic. Jeez. Jeez. Um, I wanted to ask what your favorite things about non-towered airports were. Um, actually, a funny story. I was on my first cross-country solo, and I've only been at a, like a airport. Um, I was at all towered airports in my training, except for once with my instructor. And I think he did most of the radio calls so I could concentrate on what I was doing. So I get to my place of landing for cross-country, and you know, I did all my calls 10 miles out and in the pattern. And then I landed, and then I mentioned every single turn on the taxiway going back <laughs> where I was going. And later I discovered that was not the case. You don't really have to do that. And <laughs> sometimes the less you say, the better, because I know it can get so jammed on a busy day, and people have diarrhea of the mouth, and they say so much that's not necessary. One of the things I didn't like about the tower, uncontrolled airport or, or non-towered airport is the fact that you know, I had one small bad experience where it was about 800 feet and had a power loss in a, a 172. And when I started saying Mayday, people thought I was kidding. There's nobody there to help either. Well, there is. I, actually, amazingly enough, there was. There was there, because it's such a wide frequency. There's so many airports. That oh, were, true. Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of CTAFs are shared frequencies. Do you know the best thing I did was I, I typed in 7700 and they were immediately out there. But, but you know, I, I'm on the radio and people are like, are you serious? Are you sure this is not a training place? And no, get, get out of my way. <laughs> yeah. You don't take those words lightly, no. you know. You oh, I joke for about Mayday all the time. No, I'm just calling my dog. Mayday, <laughs> Mayday, get down, get down. As long as you don't do it, you know, on the radio. <laughs> Jeez, Wow. I'll never forget that. I was like, I was so mad because no one was taking me serious. I was like, no, I got a power loss. I got to try mm-hmm. to get this thing around. And uh, so maybe, you know, it's just a little thing, but that's one thing, you know, yeah. that, that frustrating that day. It's a pretty big thing. <laughs> yeah, and you're right, Carl. They did change the name, right? It's no longer uncontrolled. It is now non-towered. Because they know we're all uncontrolled. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. Well, with all these pilot psychotic pilots in the news you never know anymore oh god oh boy um yes non-towered airports that's correct because they aren't exactly uncontrolled because we're all sequencing in with each other and communicating with each other so the the correct terminology is non-towered when did that change uh does anybody know got a hold of it and said what are these uncontrolled airports we got to put an end to this and then so they (laughs) (laughs) that was my politically incorrect statement but 
I think I, I don't think that's the that's my <laughs> I said that I don't know how how they, or why they did it to be honest with you. Well, it was but, in the last year or two, I believe. Years ago, non-towered. How many? Yeah, it, it, it's recent. Recent, yeah. That's it's. I think it's more. It's definitely more than a year though. Mm. It's a non-towered airport. Non-towered. Yeah, one of my favorite things about operating in a non-towered environment is essentially what we kind of already touched upon, and that is the. Uh, sort of the ease of freedom. And and I don't necessarily mean freedom from a standpoint that you can do things that you can't do at a non-towered airport. But when I was flight instructing in Southwest Virginia, the non-towered airports, there was like nobody ever there. So as far as freedoms with, you know, with respect to freedom, you could go out there and pound out, you know, your 10 touch and goes easily in like 0.7 and then be back to the airport in under an hour. And so those kinds of things, you know, you can do with a little bit more efficiency when you're not necessarily dealing at a high traffic area with a lot of people coming in and coming out and having to deal with, you know, talking to uh, the tower and doing this and that and the other thing. So yeah, that was one of the benefits that I really enjoyed. Uh, of course, there's, uh, I don't know, what else? What else? What else are some other good things about non-towered airports? Sometimes so one thing you have to be careful about, I guess one of the downsides are, is uh, aircraft... There's plenty of aircraft that are, and this is legal, of course, aircraft operating without radio communications. Mm. And that's one thing you do have to be careful with that you find a lot more at these non-towered airports. Uh, yeah, because we had an issue in this, this exact same airport I was just referencing about that we used to operate out of for training flights at this non-towered airport. There was at night, about once or twice a week, there'd be an aircraft that would fly into this airport with no radio communications, with all of its lights off, and then land and be there for a very short period of time and then depart. And it was the, um, it was the understanding of myself and a couple of other friends of ours that it was, and this is no joke, we thought it was, we believed it to have been some sort of drug operation. Because who else operates an aircraft? into a non-towered airport with their lights off and not communicating in any way, shape, or form. So, you know, there's, there are some hidden hazards, and I'm not saying that you're flying into these, you know, drug runner airports, but as far as, like, uh, aircraft that uh, don't have an electrical system or don't have an air traffic control, you know, a way to communicate, they're not necessarily hazards. You just have to use those see-and-avoid techniques that we learned at towered airports um, and be more of aware of what's happening around you. I haven't actually really run into. Has anybody else flown into a non-towered airports uh, and experienced, you know, traffic patterns with uncommunicate you know, aircraft that aren't in communication with each other? I have with several ultralights before. So um, that it was cool because I love watching ultralights. Sure. But um, on the other hand, you know, you have to be constantly aware of where they are at all times, and you know. That, that always made me paranoid, not being able to hear where they were. You kind of had to guess if they were behind you, in front of you, making sure you're not going on top of them. Yeah. So you really have to be on your A-game. Yeah. yeah. We've got a bunch of champs at our aircraft, our airport, and they, they don't have any radios. Yeah. Well, you know, I wonder, because more often than not, I, I mean, we're the ones with the radios. We're communicating. It's both our responsibilities to see and avoid. But I wonder if they're working harder because they can't at least hear on the radio when somebody's in the area. You know, even if they don't have a, a transmitter, maybe they just have, a, you know, a one-way radio where they can hear what's going on. I wonder if these guys with no radio communications have to work harder to see who else is out there. 
Well, I, I think, yeah, I think we, we all should work just as hard as, as those people that have no radios. You know, I, I used to teach deaf pilots how to fly, and they had to sit there and work no radios because they couldn't hear. Mm-hmm. Would have, they do. You know, one of the things that we always teach them is do, you know, 360-degree turns on the taxiway so you can look all around you. So, yeah, they, they probably are working a little bit harder as far as seeing avoiding, but maybe that makes them safer because they don't believe it. Could, oh, yeah, 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 it very well could. Very well could. Uh, Rick, have you ever experienced operations not, uh, with non-controlled or non-communicating aircraft? Not not literally in the way you're describing. Uh, I've had a couple situations where people had radios but weren't doing a very good job of announcing their position. <laughs> Well, and that's, that that's inherently <laughs> the same as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, and it was sort of the, the, that was, I think I described it on one of the podcasts. I broke up, I broke off the pattern because suddenly um, there was another plane mm-hmm. in the sort of base, you know, base to final area that I, and I, and I wasn't quite, I was about to turn and I could, and I, I was tracking one plane and suddenly there was another one that, that had not, you know, called before and I couldn't see him and I didn't know where he was. So I broke, I just broke off because I didn't, trust my I didn't trust that moment because I wasn't sure and I and I don't think he'd made a call before and there was there were a couple other places cases where I remember staying out further away until I could because there were people reporting a plane that was non-communicate you know communicating and um, they were trying to make sure that they were safe with regard to this plane and I waited till that got cleared up it mm-hmm. wasn't directly affecting me except that I circled pretty far out till I was clear that 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 was you know that situation wasn't still active, mm-hmm. so yeah. Cool. That's about it. Yeah, we some we don't fly to a lot of non-towered airports in the airline environment, but sometimes <laughs> we do. Uh, sometimes we do. There's a couple. There's do you a couple have to land? The- but, but do you have to if you land past certain hours in certain airports? Does that change? Right. Yeah, that's actually what I was about to get to. Yeah. I mean, there are a couple of airports that are non-towered. Uh, but more often than not, we just run into an op- a point of whether or not we're just really super late or super early, and it's outside of uh, operating hours for the tower. And it's kind of funny, you know, calling up on flight service, <laughs> and they're like, "You're who? And you want what? And <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm the big guy. I need I need help with this, that, or the other thing." Yeah, where was that? Uh, what was that airport with the sleeping? Uh, tower was it JFK. Was it JFK who was sleeping? I think it was JFK. Yeah, or was, it was it like newer? A, Somebody no, was, no, no, no. I believe it was JFK. And a bunch of planes had to land. Or was it, oh, yeah, was it JFK, a DC? Yeah. Was it a DC it was, area? It was definitely JFK. Oh, Reagan. Reagan. Yeah, it was Reagan. And Reagan. a bunch of planes had to come in, you know, doing that. Because though it though it was not uh you know out of out of out of out of hours. Yeah, right, after hours. Right. There was no one responding, so they treated it that way, which was very good. But which, I love how the media freaked out there yeah. was no one there to help the planes land. Right, exactly. And, and don't, this, don't, don't, they were all going to fall out of the sky without yeah. those controllers there. Yeah. They all had they all had approach clearances and after that they could they could, you know, they could fly, finish the approach and land safely. No big deal. Right. That's cool. That's the media over sensationalizing everything. Yes. Well, that's why we have people like Carl to uh yes. talk on. Set him straight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully we set him straight. Gosh, I don't know. I don't know. Good question. Good question. Uh, oh, did Carl say something? I'm having a hard time hearing Carl. Carl, hello. <laughs> Sometimes we just land the planes. It ha- yeah, that's what you got to do. You know, eventually you got to land it. Even after three go rounds, one of these times you got to land somewhere. You can't just keep flying around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How much beer has he had? <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. 
I don't know what <laughs> you're very mellow. <laughs> what show talking about? <laughs> um. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Uh, okay, cool. Moving on to uh, just a quick, uh, a, a quick thing. Um, Rick, actually, I'm, I'll ask you since instead yeah. of typing this, I'll just ask you real quick. You wanted to talk a little bit about this. Uh, the space shuttle and the 747, I think it sort of had what was going on just recently. Yeah, it was just cool. I, you know, going to the museum. I don't know if it's too long for time or if you wanted to talk about it real fast. I can do. It, I can actually do it quick. It's not. Okay. It's not necessarily full. I just found it fascinating. You know, I love. Maybe you can tell from the last episode. I, as a kid growing up uh, in Florida, loved the space program and have always been into it. And and the shuttle itself, a pretty cool. You know, I know some people would say uh, unnecessarily dangerous and complex device in some ways, but. But very cool that it that it does what it does, and 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 as I became a pilot, it sort of added another level of cool to it for me because, especially on the landings, and when they would transmit those heads up display views, I don't know if you guys ever watched those or saw them, but but it's I watched this giant thing that was in space basically do what I do in a in a one seventy two, you know, though it has no engine, it's it's you know it's it's lining up with the runway and rounding out and flaring and touching down, and it's just there's something cool about knowing that you kind of do that too in a way. And, and that was, that was sort of, that was an added bonus for me as I, as I became a pilot. Well, so the, the retiring the fleet that that's, that era is over. And, um, as we record this, um, discovery got moved from, uh, recently just a day or so ago from, uh, Florida up to the Smithsonian to, 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 uh, be admitted to the Smithsonian. And there was this, as many people probably saw it, the whole, 747 shuttle ferry service that, that NASA has had in place to move the shuttles from the West Coast when they landed Edwards out to the East Coast. Uh, that was brought into play to bring the, the shuttle up. And I was watching it. There's a lot of coverage of that, of that, of that uh, pa uh, stack, they call it, the two, the two flying vehicles uh, circling over Washington. It was fascinating to watch. And it got me thinking about, especially, you know, there's the landing and watching all that happen. What's that like? Or how does that work? Um, uh, how does that plane work? The 747. What's it like to land with a shuttle strapped to the top of your of your airplane? And um, I did just did a little looking up online uh, of some articles that were written about that very thing, and I could quickly run through some interesting top, you know, interesting uh, nuggets of information about that if you want. Yeah, do, um, do it. It's cool. It's so with the shuttle on board because so the, the the 747 they use is basically gutted it's it's the cockpit and what you know it's all essential stuff but where the where the people would be where the galley would be where the you know the toilets and the luggage and all that stuff is 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 not there and so with the shuttle on board that com combined stack is lighter than uh than the normal configuration full of people um with the shuttle it's uh 488,000 pounds and with people it can be as much as 800,000 pounds so that's fascinating too. You look at the thing and go, that must be just, uh -huh. that weight must be incredible. Well, it's actually lighter. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Um, the reports from the pilot that, that I read were that it, it does handle more sluggishly. Um, it burns twice the amount of fuel because of the drag, I assume. Um, and they have to avoid, the, the fly, a lot of it's about logistics of where they fly. They have to avoid um, uh, inclement weather. Um, and ba mostly, uh, I've got some notes here, but mostly that's because to protect the shuttle, uh, cold is a problem and, uh, and, you know, and too much, you know, thunderstorms or too much turbulence or whatever. Um, it, the range because of the fuel burn is it barely can exceed, um, 1100 nautical miles, which apparently normally it's more than 5,000 miles. Mm -hmm. Um, handling is different. There's a steady rumbling vibration. 
uh, the report is with the shuttle up there. Um, they have to travel at slower speeds, lower altitude, and dodging weather. And um, and if they're coming from the West Coast, it's, it's more stops along the way. Um, the one, Another little interesting thing is, you may have seen this, there are tip fins on the horizontal stabilizer, um, and those had to be added to increase directional stability because the shuttle blocks the airflow over the normal center vertical stabilizer. I've always so wondered about that. That's what those are out there for. And what's... What's interesting, though, is without the shuttle on top, when they're repositioning that 747, it's um, almost overstable to the point that the, the crosswind uh, limits are, are, are lower than a normal 747. So, so as a pilot of that, there's some interesting trade-offs uh, when the shuttle's not up there. Um, shuttles lack – surprisingly, this report said the shuttle has a lack of tolerance for cold, um, so they have to be careful about – that's partly why they don't fly as high as they would um, – that seems ironic. It, it does because I know how can it not? Yeah, I don't know. It, the note was a limit of negative nine degrees centigrade, um, but I don't. I don't understand. <laughs> maybe, maybe they, maybe they aim it at the sun more often, or there's a road. I don't know. Uh, in space, um, and then I thought it was cool too that that support aircraft or the wing aircraft that you could see the other day, um, or, there, or there's either that one and or another one that flies ahead of that stack to uh, make sure the weather's good. So it's very carefully thought out. And I just, um, I thought all that was fascinating and, uh, and, and just cool. Cool that someone figured out that solution and they've been doing it all these years and uh, kind of sad that it's over, but we'll move on to other things. We so, do, yeah. And it's, uh, she's safe and sound in the, uh, in the museum there now. Yeah, and I guess, the, so the one that was there, which is Enterprise, which never flew in space, is going to be moved up to New York City. And, uh, and then I think there's another ferry flight out to the West Coast or something. So mm -hmm. it's a couple more flights, but this was sort of a big one and fun for everybody to watch. Very cool. cool. Yeah. yeah. It is cool. I, I, I don't know about you guys, but just through social media, I was not in Washington, Dulles when it came in, but it, it was as good as if I was with all the photos from everybody yeah. and their mother out there taking photos and sharing photos. And it was just, it looked really, really cool. It was cool to listen to, to the transmission that was on online because the tower was doing a really cool job. Well, we weren't listening to the tower frequency, but it was a, some sort of control frequency. Sure. Positioning helicopters, photo helicopters that had, that were there and, and were, you know, on either side of the runway or one side of the runway and they moved them at one point. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was just very well planned. Everybody was communicating well. Um, and uh, there was actually at the last minute, I don't know if this was written up anywhere, but it was interesting to see the, the 747 pilot asked for a, a quick a sort of expedited landing for his wing airplane who was running low on fuel. Mm -hmm. And so they quickly had to sort of go, well, here's what we're going to do for that. And it was no big deal, but they definitely asked because um, they were doing a whole lot of flying over Washington that ate up a lot of time. So anyway, yeah. It was sure. cool. It was cool. It was a cool uh, space slash aviation uh, day, and I think a lot of people enjoyed it. So, well, I don't, I don't know. Go ahead, Carl. Yeah, the one special thing about Discovery to me, and I'm sure everybody else who actually was watching TV when the Challenger and the Columbia disasters happened, is that this is the aircraft that flew every return to flight mission after yeah. those. Yeah. One that said, yes, we can overcome this and we will move forward with this space program. Right. It's cool. I, I got to go to a launch near the end. And the one I got to ended up randomly going to was uh, the last Discovery launch. So I was very lucky to be there and, and feel something about that. I'm looking forward to going down to see it in person at some point. Have you not, have you, oh, sorry, have you not been in the, uh, not in a Dulles? long time. Oh, okay. No, I have not. So I need to go down there. Yeah, no, it's especially. pretty cool. I mean, they have a nice IMAX there, but they have this really neat observation deck hmm. that overlooks 
its perspective at the Dulles Airport, it's closest to all aircraft arrivals on runway one right. Mm. So uh, it's the day that the uh, A380 came in there, you know, a lot of people were out there in the museum parking lot and up in the observation deck taking photos. And I don't know, does anybody know if the 747 came in on one right or what runway they came in on? Yeah, it was. It was one right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In fact, there's a great shot. I, I will put it in the metadata and I'll send it to you guys that I love. I don't know if you saw me post it. That's the extreme short final for that for the stack, and mm-hmm. it's just cool because that's a lot of stuff in the air. Oh yeah, at a fairly sensitive moment in flight, and in the background, just huge seas of people on the other side of something, you know, where they could get, you know, mm-hmm. public. It's a cool, it's a cool photo from a helicopter. Yeah. Anyway, a lot of those, a lot of those people in the sea are friends of ours, and yes, Twitter and the podcast, and oh yeah. A lot that, like I said, a lot of these people are the ones that I saw the photos from. So I was I was at work, but I still got to experience the the whole day's events through uh, through our friends yeah. here at the podcast and online. So yeah, thanks cool. to them. Thanks to them. Exactly. Yeah. I, thanks I, to them. Our picks of the week. Well, let's wrap it up and head over into our picks of the week, the portion of the show where we share our uh, aviation um, products and services that we have either used or found useful. We'll go ahead and start with Carl. Tell us about your pick of the week, sir. Yeah, my, my pick of the week, actually, I was thinking of, I was going to change it just because of all the news that's been happening, is a, a great guy, great website. It's called liveatc.net. And, uh, I've never heard of it. Yeah, hmm. liveatc.net. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yes, tell us what they do. It sounds interesting. <laughs> See, boy, I tell you, these, these folks are something else. <laughs> They, uh, Dave Pasco and the guys there, they, they were actually one of the first people to come out with the uh, air traffic control tapes after today's uh, accident. And, uh, and what's, you know, what's really neat about this is that, you know, after talking to the people at the media, they said, well, we'll just get it off of liveatc.net. I was like, wow, you know, these, these guys are something else. But that, that, that's my, my one quick aside, and I guess it's more of a shout-out than my, my pick of the week. But, uh, but there's also my, my true pick of the week is the one with the unmanned aircraft systems from the, the FAA.gov's website, and we'll have the link out there. And that is where you can find out about all the information pertaining to what I talked about and all the uh, different types of operating uh, certificates and, and all the different uh, waivers that you'd have to go through and, and learn a little bit more about what the FAA is doing with this and the whole history of the unmanned aircraft systems, and that's at the FAA.gov, and it's under the unmanned aircraft systems um, uh, section. Cool. Another thing about liveatc.net, if you don't mind me saying real quick, um, they were a sponsor of Fly It Forward, and Dave came all the way up to fly girls at the event, so Mm -hmm. really great company there. Yeah. Very helpful. There's there's no bad things to say about Dave Pasco and liveatc.net. Just good people, good service, just, well, better than that, awesome people, awesome service. Big product. Yep. Yeah. Woo. Woo woo. Live ATC. What up? Okay. <laughs> Moving on. Um, Victoria, tell us about your pick of the week. Well, since we were talking about uh, non towered airports, um, I discovered the other day this forum called Backcountry Pilot. And it's about those little backcountry, you know, um, strips that you can land on. I've always wanted to have a cub or something like that or. Uh, husky and just land anywhere on these cool strips in the middle of nowhere. So um, the place to get some information about that is uh, backcountrypilot.org. It's a fun forum and it seems pretty active and there's a lot of great topics to check out on there. Are you interested in doing some super cub flying? 
Oh, yeah. You're going to find yourself. didn't do any flying. Think you'll find yourself in Alaska this summer? Uh, not this summer, but oh, that's a sometime bummer. next year for sure. Because maybe I haven't mentioned that I'm babysitting a super cub all year. You did. Mm, yeah. Yeah, this year I got that whole getting married thing and then. What a downer. Yeah, I know. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> what a buzzkill. Yeah. Well, you know, my first honeymoon is Oshkosh. Oh, that, this well, that's is true. That's a good thing. This is true. I but, look forward to that. Yeah. Since I work half of it, it's uh, our first honeymoon. Ah, the first. The second one. An actual one, one, right? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> cool. Is the second one going to be a private flight down to Crooked Island down in Bahamas? Oh, no. That'll become winter. That's on the list. Oh, that's uh, true. We're yeah, going to Greece and Turkey. So we have to go somewhere cultural and. Far away. Oh, very cool. Very yeah. Cool. Um, well, I'm going to actually hand it over to Rick then because yours okay. sort of ties into what she was just talking about, yeah. backcountry flying and super cubs A or cubs bit. in general. But go ahead, Rick. Yeah, no, I just stumbled upon this uh, uh, gentleman who I have not communicated with yet at all prior to the show, but I will just tell you, it's it's um it's a guy in France who has a great uh, YouTube channel and um, blog about uh, – just flying around over the French countryside in what appears to be a cub. I was talking to, to Len about it, and it's it's in French, so you have to translate the site. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, you know, so there's a little bit of, uh, and I have not heard back from him directly, but um, it's just great. It's just great flying, and the pictures are beautiful. It's GoPro two stuff. Um, I don't think he has the special sauce, secret sauce on the the prop artifacts, but he um, no, but I, I looked. He yeah, doesn't. but but that's it's new. We should send that. Uh, you know, I'll talk to him about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the guy's name is Jean Claude, and I think it's pronounced pronounced Garnavo. Um, the YouTube channel is sort of easier to direct you to initially, and then you can get to his website. But it's um, JCG Juliet Charlie Golf nine five two eight zero is his name on YouTube. Uh, great videos, um, cool blog. The blog's a little more complicated. It's a blogspot.com blog, but we'll put that in the show notes for you. But you can get there through the YouTube channel. And I just think it's a cool thing for you to check out if you want to if you want to sit at your desk and fly a cub over over France, over, over pic- France, picturesque yeah. France. Very cool. There's a lot of photos. I went because you sent me the link to check it out and see what kind of aircraft it was. And the, he takes a lot of ground photos of different stuff, chateaus and chalets yes. and mansions. Yes. It's and romantic. It's very the romance of flying kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a fun, fun little discovery. So it there is. you go. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Neato. Well, I wanted to uh, I've, I wanted to revisit an old friend, iFlightPlanner.com. I've talked about them a lot on the show here. Yay. I've used them as a pick of the week. They are a friend of the podcast. A shout out to my friends Andy uh, Matthews and John Bernstein and Christian Palm over there at iFlightPlanner. Uh, they have just uh, – We uh, my first pick of the week was the service itself at iFlightPlanner.com. My second pick of the week was their iPad application. My pick of the week today – is a uh, version three of their web software. And there's some updates for both the premium customers and also the free customers. I'll run through those real quick. Uh, For premium customers, such things as uh, using latitude and longitude to create custom waypoints, exporting your navigation logs uh, to .gpx or FPL format for your Garmin handheld devices, identifying custom waypoints, printing passenger briefing sheets, you can store unlimited number of aircraft profiles. Uh, let's see, down to the, some of the free features. You can use um, FAA preferred encoded departure routes, CDRs, coded departure routes. I actually had a little bit, a little hand in helping them out with that because they were asking me some questions about how we use those at the airline, and I helped them with some info there. You can uh, also now file ICAO domestic and international flight plans 
also flight plans to and from the Washington DC SRFA. Uh, you can also, let's see, what's one of these other things here? Uh, filter aircraft or airports by distance and minimum runway length and a whole bunch more. I'm just going to include in the show notes and also on the website the link to the blog post with all of these new feature updates. Again, these feature updates are available on the website itself, the web service at iflightplanner.com. The After Landing Checklist. So, Victoria, tell folks, tell the listeners out there how they can find you, get in touch with you, bug you, and ask you what kind of wine you've been drinking tonight. Well, it was Pinot Grigio, and uh, please don't bug me, but you're welcome to contact me. Uh, all my info is on toriaflies.blogspot.com. All right, Carl. Well, they can reach me at uh, expertaviator.com. Same thing on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Mr. Felty. R. Felty on Twitter, R.D. Felty on YouTube, and rotationspeed.com is the blog. You can reach me, Len Costa, at thepilotreport.com, also the Pilot Report on Facebook and Twitter. Any questions, comments, concerns, feedback, anything for the podcast, stuckmikeavcast.com is the website. We are on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We're on your iPhone, your iPad, your um, Android device. Check us out. And <laughs> Just try to get away from us. <laughs> yeah, get, you can. You cannot get away. <laughs> <laughs> We're everywhere. Uh, send us an email, stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com. From all of us here today, episode number 24 of the Stuck Mike Avcast, myself, Len Costa, Victoria Newville, Carl Valeri, and Rick Felty. We appreciate your listenership. Thanks for tuning in today. We all wish you guys clear skies and calm winds. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Abcast is an aviation podcast brought to you by thepilotreport.com, a Len Costa production.